Welcome to Insight, a podcast devoted to subjects that are theological, historical, literary, even cinematic, but especially biblical. I'm your host and presenter, Gary Nation. The political drama of Second Kings continues. When the prophet anoints Jehu to be the new king of Israel, it sets in motion a whole series of events, and dominoes and heads begin to fall. What shall we say about King Jehu's revolution? Does it go too far, or does it even go far enough? And how does it affect the neighboring kingdom of Judah? Let's find out. Well, we open our Bibles again to 2 Kings. And we're going to see an interplay of two, the stories of two kings who are revolutionaries. We saw, we introduced last week this, uh, the revolutionary Jehu who fulfilled the plan and purpose of God to bring judgment upon the house of Ahab and to bring judgment and retribution upon the altar of Baal. As a matter of fact, we're going to see today and, and follow through on that and see how Jehu undid the Baalism in Israel. And the zeal with which he did that. And we're going to be introduced to a character who is... who just shows up. It's almost kind of like a cameo role in the Bible. He just, it just comes out of, uh, of somewhere... And later on, God's going to use him in the message of a prophet in order to teach Israel something else. And we're not going to talk about that, except we'll just kind of mention it when we get there. But we're going to see how, you know, what is his role in all of this? Remember, we're looking at First and Second Kings, the books of Kings, which is really one book in two scrolls, one book in two volumes. We're looking at First and Second Kings and looking at it as being the worldly and political and religious expression in Israel of a large war that is taking place in the heavenly realm. An unseen war, a spiritual war, a clash of kingdoms and principalities and powers that is not seen on earth except mostly as a proxy war on earth. And yet we see it breaking out visibly at spectacular times. But most of the time it's going underneath the surface. It's guiding all of these things. And the people on earth become participants in this battle. Not knowing that it is the spiritual battle that they are participating in. And we see overall God, the sovereign God of all the nations of the world. Not just the nation of Israel. Who is arranging all things toward one particular end. And that end is to bring into this world the Messiah, the Redeemer, the one who will save his people from their sin, the one who will be the Savior for all the world. All of this is directed toward that. What we're seeing here, remember, when the, the fuller and more proper title of the book of Kings is Kings and Prophets and Christ. 
And we're seeing the issues here. And we're seeing them battled out. And the question is, at this point, can the enemy of our souls prevent the plan of God from being carried out? Can the enemy of our souls so subvert God's plan through the sinfulness of mankind that God is seeking to save? Israel, under King Ahab, the people of God, the chosen covenant people of God, have not only departed from the proper worship of God, under King Ahab, they departed from the worship of Jehovah God at all. And were moving toward the worship of the gods of this world. Not just what they were doing was worshiping their God and the name of their God according to the ways of the world. That's what they had been doing under the arrangement of Jeroboam. But now under the arrangement of King Ahab, they have brought in Baal. And when you're bringing in Baal, you're not just bringing in one Baal. You're bringing in thousands. You're bringing in, you're bringing in a religious pluralism that is very much akin to what we have in our world today. God's many, Lord's many. Nobody worships the same God, so everybody's worshiping God just the way they want to worship Him. It is, in other words, humanism, pure and simple. Boiled down to its last note, Baalism is ultimately humanism. All idolatry is humanism. And all humanism, ultimately, is idolatry. And God's people have been sold over to that. But God has brought in Elijah. And Elijah has interrupted it, has stopped it, has stopped it decisively. And yet, it continues, much to the disappointment and discouragement of Elijah... But God gives Elijah a further commission. God lets Elijah know, I'm not finished yet. And when, I, and when you're finished, that doesn't mean I'm finished. Your work is about wrapped up. But I've got a few more things that I need you to do. You need to appoint Elisha to take your place. You need to appoint Hazael. You need to anoint Hazael to become my hammer of judgment outside of Israel. And you need to anoint Jehu to be my sword of judgment inside Israel. And that's what happens. We see the story of Hazael, who takes the place of Ben-Hadad, who was no friend of Israel to begin with, but Hazael is bitter, and he has a hatred of Israel. And he will use that hatred, and he will punish Israel. He has assassinated his king, taken over in a coup d'etat. We've seen that. And then we've seen Jehu. And what starts as being a secret anointing. The messenger of Elisha sent on the mission that God first gave to Elijah. And now Elisha is carrying it out and sends a messenger to go and secretly anoint Jehu. And Jehu takes that anointing and he leads a revolt against Ahab. Not a well, Ahab is dead, but the son of Ahab. And goes and he kills Jehoram, the son of Ahab. And he also kills Abijah, the nephew of Ahab, who is the king of Judah. 
or was it the son-in-law? No, the son-in-law of Ahab. That's right, the son-in-law of Ahab, who's the king of Judah. Again, I, I, even I get these things, you know, just... Just everybody calm down, all right? Just... Okay, yes? Is there some significance to the fact that Elisha didn't anoint Jehu himself to send a messenger? I don't, I don't think that there's a significance. I think there's a reason. I think the reason is that Elisha knew if he showed up in the camp, everybody would know something was up. And the whole success of this operation depended on it getting started in secret. So, but otherwise there's no more significance in it than that Elijah did not carry it out in person either. You know, actually this is Elijah who's sending, Elisha who sends the message. So, you know, you've got proxies along the way, but everything is being done according to the word of the Lord that God gave to Elijah. By the way, this has taken about 15 years or so to all unfold. As God and the the message of R. G. Lee in the sermon "Payday Someday," that the wheels of God's judgment grind exceeding slow, but they grind they grind very slow, but they grind exceeding fine. We think we get away with stuff. We think that the bad guys get away with stuff. It looks like they do. Nobody gets away with anything. And God's word does not fail. We think God's forgotten. A year passes, two years pass, several years pass, we think God has forgotten it. If we're guilty, we think God has forgotten our sin. If we are afflicted, we think God has forgotten us and left us in our affliction. None of that is true. But he has his own strategy and his own operations. He knows what he's doing, and he is fulfilling this. Jehu, he has come, he has, he has killed the son of Ahab. He has killed Jezebel in a very bloody scene. He has killed the king of Judah. He has begun the process of a purge of, the, of all of those who had any claim to descendants from Ahab so that no one could come and say, I am the rightful heir to the throne of Omri. He does that by going to Samaria. They're all... Or by go, he, he, takes, he just takes care of that. I'm not going to go through all the details of, of going on through that. In the process of this, let's see. Let's get to that. Is in chapter ten. You see the uh, and the heading that I've got in my study Bible says Jehu slaughters Ahab's descendants, and that kind of pretty well puts it in the in the characteristic. This is not. There are no trials. There are no trials. The trial has already been held as far as Jehu is concerned. He has the commission. He is carrying it out. Chapter 18. Or not chapter 18, verse 18. Before we get to verse 18. um, Chapter 10, verse 15. 
in verse uh, just previous to that, verse 12. He's going on his way to Samaria. And on their way out of Samaria to Jezreel. They haven't, by the way, they haven't been reading the papers very much. There is no CNN. There is no instantaneous communication these days. There is no, there, you know, they, they don't have cable. They don't have internet. They don't have Twitter. They really don't know. These, these are people who do not want, know what's happening. There are people who are relatives of the king of Judah. And they, they're in a party on the way to go and just have a, have a nice little fellowship and get together. It says we are going to greet, literally says we're going to say shalom to uh, the queen mother who is Jezebel. They don't know that the only thing left of Jezebel is a few bones that the dogs refuse to eat. Okay. Now all of these people are from the house of David. They're from Judah. That tells you something. That tells you of the influence of Baalism in Judah. That's going to become a little bit critical here in a little bit, in just a little while. They are, but they are on the way. Jehu interrupts them, and they don't get any further. They meet the sword of Jehu. All of this is starting to get... If you're squeamish, <laughs> then you're not happy right now with what's going on. But on the other hand, if you understand the injustice, if you understand the bloodshed that's already been carried out in the name of Baal... By, the, by Ahab, by all of his officials, if you understand, you can see, you can understand there is a vengeance that is being taken, taking place here. And Jehu considers himself to be the avenger of God. And God really has appointed him to that. So we get to chapter, uh, verse 15 of chapter 10. And when he greeted her, uh, when he departed from there, he met Jehonadab, son of Rechab, coming to meet him. And he said to him, Is your heart true to my heart as mine is to yours? And Je Jehonadab answered, It is. And Jehu said, If it is, give me your hand. So he gave him his hand, and Jehu took him up with him in his chariot. And he said, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. So he had him ride in his chariot. And when he came to Samaria, he struck down all who remained to Ahab in Samaria till he had wiped them out according to the word of the Lord that he spoke to Elijah. Who is this Jehonadab character? character? He is the head of a clan called the Rechabites. The clan of Rechab were descendants of... They were a clan of a group called the Kenites. They were not Israelites. They are not descended from Jacob. They are Semites, but they are not descended from Jacob. They are kind of like a cousin ethnic group to the Hebrews, to the Israelites. They are nomadic by their ethnicity and culture. Most of them are. Some of the Kenites, some of those Kenite clans have apparently assimilated and become part of the Israelite culture. Jehonadab is a holdback. He will not let his clan or his family do that. As a matter of fact, we find out in Jeremiah that Jehonadab enforces upon his 
clan, he calls upon his sons and he says, I want you to take an oath. And I want you and all of your descendants to take the same oath. And that oath is this, you will never drink wine. You're going to be teetotalers forever. You are never going to drink wine. Why? Because you drink wine, sometime or another you're going to start planting vineyards. You start planting vineyards, that means you're going to settle down. You're going to build houses. You're going to start living near cities. You're going to fit in. That is the first step to your becoming part of this worldly, idolatrous culture. And that's not <clears throat> going to happen to us. Because they follow Jehovah. That's right. They worship Jehovah God. They are not Israelites, but they worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And therefore, with that in mind, that's what Jehan, that's who Jehonadab is. He is a man. In other words, Jehonadab, we find out, the little bit that we're told, the little snippets that we're told about Jehonadab is that this man is a man of conviction, not convenience. This is a man of conviction, not just preference. He's not choosing sides because he likes this side or that side. He is finding out who is on the Lord's side. And he hears about Jehu. And he seeks out Jehu and he wants to find out for himself, face to face, is Jehu for real? And he meets him and Jehu looks at him and says, Is your heart true? As my heart is true. And they look at each other eyeball to eyeball, and, Je and Jehonadab says, Yes, sir. He said, Then are you in? He says, I'm in. He says, Join me. I want you to see my zeal for the Lord. Right now, Jehu, to all intents and purposes, is working for the Lord. Let me just go ahead and tell you. Later developments are going to reveal that Jehu is using Jehonadab in order to validate what he's doing. No. Somebody wouldn't do that. We don't have politicians that call themselves people of conviction in order to bring people of conviction into their political camp, do we? Well, I, let's not get into that, okay? <laughs> just a little suggestion thrown out there, just a little thing. But there, this is the role of Jehonadab. Right now, Jehonadab is in the chariot with Jehu. And Jehu needs Jehonadab. Because Jehu needs Je the pe what Jehonadab represents to become what he represents to the people. He needs the people to see there is, some, there is a change coming, and this is the direction of the change. And right now, Jehu's right to do so. What takes place next is, beginning with verse 18 through 26, not going to take the time to read it all because there's much more I want to get to, but Jehu proceeds to absolutely get rid of Baalism once and for all from Israel. The decisive blow was at Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal, were, were, uh, of Baal and Ashtoreth were killed under Elijah. But 
there has still been this subcurrent of Baal. It's still been in there. And part of the reason, why? Jezebel has still been queen. And Jezebel is not going to let it go. And there still is the temple of Baal in Samaria. And there is a sacred stone. You know what? That probably was a meteorite. <clears throat> These sacred stones were generally something, some artifact like that that was different from the other, you know, the other geo, uh, geologic features of that area, something that was outstanding. Probably it was a meteorite or something like, some remnant of a meteorite that they looked at. This is something that fell from heaven. This is from the gods, you know, and all of it. You know, this, you know how, how superstitious people are. And they uh, gathered around this, you know, this, this was something like this. So they had the sacred stone. That, that's my opinion. I don't know that. I don't have direct archaeological evidence from, for this. It's just studies of anthropology in general. That seems to be kind of the way things go. So uh, they do by a, basically by a dirty trick. Jehu pretends, says, okay, let me tell you what this, let me tell you what this revolution is all about. This revolution is all about getting rid of the worship of Yahweh and making permanent the worship of Baal. And I want all the real Baal worshipers to gather here and I want to find out who's on my side. And so all the Baalites come out and they swallow it. Jehu is very persuasive. That's something we find out about Jehu that's just sort of, it's not dwelt upon, but it's obvious he's very persuasive. He brings us out and coaxes out of hiding all the Baal worshipers and, and brings them all to Samaria where Baal, Baal worship really is uh, not underground. It really is a, uh, a thing. They've got a temple of Baal there. They've got this sacred stone and everybody comes here. And just to make sure that they're all marked as Baal worshipers and he doesn't get any faith, any people in there who are really not Baal worshippers, but they're just in along for the crowd. He dresses them specifically. He gives them clothing appropriate to the worship of Baal. Now, we don't know exactly what that is, but there, it's just holy garments. And if you're wearing this garment, if you take this garment on you, you're saying, I belong to Baal. That's the idea. And then he gets them in, and he even goes in, and he and Jehonadab's watching all this. And he goes in, and I wonder if Jehonadab is in on the, on the idea and wonders, what did I sign on for? I don't know. But Jehonadab's watching all this. And Jehu comes in, brings it in, even makes an offering to Baal. Brings it in. I mean, he sells it. <laughs> he sells it really good. And then he has, a, he has his troops surround them all and kill everyone wearing the Baal garment. And then he takes that sacred stone and smashes it to bits. And then they take down that Baal temple stone by stone. And Baal worship is now officially dead in Israel. Good for Jehu. Verse 28, thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. Verse 29, but. <laughs> you know that in this book by now you know that there's pretty well, 
going to be a but. Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. Why? That wasn't in his heart. I don't see the need in doing that. His revolution was not complete. His revolution only took things back to as they were before Ahab. It didn't take it back to the days before Jeroboam. If he had done that, he might have had himself a dynasty. As it was, God determined, said, you did what I needed you to do specifically right now. You obeyed the letter of my law up to this point. So verse 30, And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons to the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. So Jehu could have been a star in the book of God. Turns out to be just another king. And, by the way, in wrecking the society the way he did, <laughs> yeah, he reigned, and he had sons sitting on the throne of the fourth generation, but that, the, the scope of that kingdom <clears throat> kept shrinking by great degrees, even in his generation. Because what you see is Hazael, by his encroachments and his invasion, ended up completely stripping Israel of all of the territory east of the Jordan. The territory of Manasseh and Gilead, all taken by the Syrians. And then Hazael started going in and encroaching on the plain and that trade route down the Mediterranean. And so Jehu ruled by the permission of God, by the commission of God, but his, shrink, his kingdom became steadily shrinking. You think it might have had something to do with the fact that he really wasn't obedient in his heart to the Lord? That instead he used the Lord to fulfill his own personal ambitions? It's not a healthy thing, folks. Folks, even those who are doing the will of God, if you're using the will of God to fulfill your own will, you can get so, you can get so far, but God is still God and you are not. So we go on to the next story. Chapter 11. Another interesting unintended consequence of this revolution in Israel. Now when Athaliah the mother of Ahaziah saw that her son was dead, Athaliah, by the way, is the daughter of Jezebel, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. At least that's what she, her, her intent was to do. But Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah. Wait, which, which royal offspring? 
David. 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 Athaliah was the wife of Ahaziah, the king of Judah. The daughter of Jezebel had married the king of Judah. That's right. Ahaziah uh, and King Jehoshaphat was the sister of Ahaziah. the daughter of King Joram of Judah. He took jo- she took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, stole him away from among, among the king's sons who were being put to death, <coughs> put him and his nurse in a bedroom. There are some who say that that's not really an accurate translation, that actually they stole him out of the bedroom, took him somewhere else. That's not the main point. The main point is <coughs> this woman, she... Okay, first of all, who does this sound like? Herod. Okay. Okay, you've got a connection there with Herod destroying all the children in order to make sure that he doesn't have any competition. Okay, who else does it sound like? Moses. Moses. See the connections here of what's going on. And you think that the writer of Kings is not aware of the connection to Moses? Of course, he can't be aware of the coming connection to Herod, but you can bet that Matthew remembered when Matthew wrote that story. Now, thus they hid him from Athaliah so he was not put to death, and he remained with her six years hidden in the house of the Lord. His place is the temple, and he's growing up as one of the temple children, while Athaliah reigned over the land. In the seventh year. What is the seventh year? What's the significance of the seventh year? Sabbath year. Think the writer of Kings is, con- is conscious of this? Do you think that... Oh, by, oh, by the way, we are told about um, Jehoiada. He's, he's mentioned here. We're not told yet who Jehoiada is. We'll find out in verse 9. He's the high priest. <coughs> In the seventh year, Jehoiada sent and brought the captains of the Karites and the guards. The Karites, that's the same as the Karathites and the Pelethites. That goes back in the days of David. David's personal bodyguard were not Israelites. They were Philistines. Oddly and ironically enough, that's right. David's personal bodyguard were not Israelites. They were Philistines. And this was a, a unit called the Karathites. seems that that name, Karathites, is related to the word Cretan, which is the, he, the ethnic heritage of the Philistines. That's basically where they came from originally. And Pelethites, it seems to be re- related to the word Philistine. So these were companies, uh, th- this was an order of men, an order of the army that was loyal to David and their oath was to David and they had no other loyalty now probably as these things go this continued to be probably it's not just this ethnic group any longer we're 150 years away from David 
probably as things go, this group has evolved somewhat in its constitution, in its makeup, but probably there's a mixture of some Jews, some Israel. You've got some Israelites in here, you've got some mercenaries from other places, but this is an elite military unit. They are a professional military unit, and their one task is to protect the family and house of David. You know that they were probably not happy when Athaliah ordered the destruction of all of the sons who were the heirs of David. That's what she did. She was been out of the palace. Okay. Now, folks, let's go back and understand understand the spiritual warfare that's going on here. What would be the significance if all of the heirs, all of the descendants of David, all of the direct line of David was killed? What's the significance of that? God's word isn't true. God's word isn't true. God's word isn't true, and the line of the Messiah, the line of the coming king of Israel, the one who would be our savior, is destroyed, it's interrupted. And God has proven to be either a liar or powerless to stop the enemy. But God's God and Satan is not. And you know, there's one person. And it's always, you know, there's the most courageous person, two courageous women against all of these actors here. There was a whole city full of men who turned over the descendants of Ahab to Jehu because Jehu wrote him a letter and said, if you want to, pick one of Ahab's descendants, make him the king, and then fight me for it. And they said, no, you can have them all and cut off their heads and threw them outside the city. <laughs> so that's, that was a whole city full of strong, mature men. And who saves the kingdom of David from destruction? Two women, a princess and a nurse. The writer of Kings knows what he's writing here. The God who brings down the mighty and exalts the humble. So on the seventh year, Jehoiada, he gathers the Carathites and the Pelathites together. Athaliah has been running the country into the ground. She has been turning Jerusalem into a Baalite shrine. And it is it has caused Let's call it a backlash. It has caused kind of a political backlash. We're going to find out that when Athaliah is put in the place of the spotlight, let's find out how many people rally to her support. He made a covenant with them, put them under oath in the house of the Lord, and he showed them the king's son. He brought out Joash said this is the last living descendant of King David 
Your life is his life, and his life is yours. And this is the thing that, and then it goes into a plan that's, the details of the plan are not as significant as the fact that the plan was planned out in detail. Basically, it was set out, the timing, it was necessary for everything to be timed just right, but this was all on the, on the Sabbath. It was during a shift change in the changing of the guard to where all of them were, all of them were given a job and a responsibility. Everybody had a job to do. And the main ones were those who were standing guard around Joash, said, nobody gets in to your column. Nobody gets into this boy. Anybody who tries, they're dead. Understand your orders? Yes, sir. These men are committed. These, these are rangers. These are Green Berets. These are, this, these are, the, these are the top guys. And they're going to make it happen. They pass out the armament. And among the arms that they pass out are the ceremonial arms. They were made just like the shields that David had for his guard. That's significant too. David is rising again. And then, verse 11, And the guard stood every man with his weapon in his hands from the south side of the house to the north side of the house around the altar in the house on behalf of the king. And then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. That is a section of the covenant in which has to do with the king's responsibility to the people and to God. And then they proclaimed his, him king and they clapped their hands and they said, Long live the king. When Athaliah heard the noise of the guard and the people, she went into the house of the Lord to the people. And when she looked, there was the king standing by the pillar according to the custom and the captains and the trumpeteers behind the king and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets and Athaliah tore her clothes and tried treason, treason. Well, she should know. Uh, the irony here is, is just huge. And then Jehoiada the priest commanded the captains who were set over the army, bring her out between the ranks and put her to death with a sword and put to death anyone who follows her. For the priest said, let her not be put to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her. <laughs> I'm sure they did so gently. And she went through the horse's entrance to the king's house and there she was put to death. That is significant. If you remember, how did Jezebel meet her fate? Under the hoofs of horses. Not how, but where did Athaliah meet her fate? at the horse's gate. That is a deliberate point being made by the rider. Athaliah tried to take the place and she was as ruthless as Jezebel. She followed through on Jezebel and she ended up like Jezebel. Like mother, like daughter. Mamas, don't let your babies grow up to be evil queens. Okay. <laughs> And Jehoiada there made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people that they should be the Lord's people and between the king and the people. And then all of the people... Notice the three-way covenant. You've got the king's covenant with the Lord. 
You've got the people's covenant with the Lord. And you've got the people's covenant with the king. And there's a three-way covenant there. Everybody's responsible. The idea here, this is a real revolution. We are coming back to our original constitution. We are coming back to the way that God intended this kingdom to be run. So Jehoiada leads this. And then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down. His altars and his images they broke in pieces and they killed Matan the priest of Baal before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord and he took the captain, the captains, the Karaites, the guards and all the people of the land and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house and he took his seat on the throat of the kings so all the people of the land rejoiced and the city was quiet. There was shalom, peace, after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword in the king's house. Not until. Joash. Very quickly, the reign of Joash. We can go over chapter 12 surprisingly quickly. Because Joash, with the great start that he had, surprisingly mediocre as a king. Despite the fact, and Joash, there are only three kings named in the books of kings who actually it tells that they are anointed Solomon, Jehu, and Joash. Speaks of their anointing. Joash has a great start, he's got everything. Let's see what it, what it says of him. He reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. Tells his mother's name. That's a usual thing, interestingly enough. And notice that she was not from the north. She was from as far south in Israel as you can get, Beersheba. And Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. The implication is so long as Jehoiada was around coaching him, he did pretty good. When Jehoiada was gone... And Chronicles, if you confer Chronicles... Joash really began to slip. Well, he was still really young, wasn't he? Reigned 40 years. Well, he started his reign at the age of seven. So he was not an old man. But he really began to slip. How bad did he slip? He slipped so bad that uh, when he set up a particular altar against the will and against the person of God, Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada, confronted him about it. Now, this is someone that he had grown up with, you understand. They were both boys growing up together in the temple. This was a childhood friend, the son of Jehoiada, stood up and confronted Joash about this and said, this is not the will of God. And Joash had him killed, had him put to death. That apparently caused a backlash. The end of Joash's reign... He was assassinated by people on his own staff. Not a happy end for this king. In the middle, what is his great achievement? Some point in his reign, he says, you know, the temple's gotten kind of run down. We need to fix it. So he sets up, he's, he authorizes the repair of the temple. Says, priest, you've got to take care of it. 
The priests start getting these extra offerings for the repair of the temple, but you know those extra offerings, they keep being used up by the regular budget and going to people's raises and all, you know, other stuff like that, and it never gets done, and, and Joash finally comes in and says, do we need to have an audit of this or what? And Jehoiada says, what? What are you talking about? Jehoiada is maybe a man of God, but he is not a good manager. And he does not manage these things well and the priests do not do what they're supposed to do with the temple and the temple is still running down and is in shambles. The plumbing's terrible. Every, I mean, it's just no. So Jeho- Joash says, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to put, we're going to set up. And so we've got the Joash chest. You know, there are lots of churches that have set up a Joash chest, you know, the, for special offerings. You know, they, they have a box there with a hole and people come put their offerings in. You know, and it's kind of a special thing. And we've done that. We've taught that, to, you know, in the children's Sunday school lesson. What we never tell people is the reason for the Joash chest is because the people who were supposed to be responsible for it were irresponsible and didn't handle God money right and may have been guilty of pilfering the offering plate and so the Joash chest was a locked box you know what the people who were put in charge of it were not priests but they were so honest and so responsible that Joash didn't even feel like he had to have an audit and under their stewardship the temple got fixed but it didn't ever get restored to the glory that it was in the days of Solomon. Now here's the irony about that. Hazael comes down. He invades Judah because he is on a he is going to take, and he first he invades Gaza, conquers Gaza. That's key city on that Mediterranean trade route down through Canaan. And then he says I'm going to get Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is built... Rehoboam had set up a wonderful defensive system. And it was not geared for... Uh, the Judean military system was not geared for offense, but they were had a wonderful defensive system. But Joash didn't want to go through the trouble of having a war. So you know what he did? You know, all these offerings that they'd been collecting to fix the temple? He went and raided them in order to pay off Hazael so that Hazael wouldn't attack Jerusalem. And the temple which Solomon had prayed, O Lord, when when enemies surround us, may your leaders pray to this temple, to this house, and hear from this house and be our defender. And rather than trust the Lord to be his defender and through the house that he himself was trying to build up, instead he raided the funds. In other words, he thought like we all do. We do not wage war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are mighty through God for the tearing down of strongholds. But we don't trust them. And we really don't believe the things that we say we believe. Joash, when it came down to it, really didn't believe the things that he had been taught to believe. Jehu's bloody coup d'etat brought some reforms to Israel and did spell the end to the relatively brief period of Baalite dominance in Israelite religion. But it never overturned the terrible precedent set by Jeroboam of making images and separating Israel's worship from the Jerusalem temple. 
The fact is that the Israelite worship of Yahweh continued to be virtually indistinguishable from that of the Baals. Archaeologists, for example, have uncovered pottery fragments showing Yahweh of Samaria and his wife. And as for the revolution that restored David's descendant Joash to the throne of Judah, once again we find something to applaud, only to be disappointed with how his story ends. Meanwhile, the prophets seem to have dropped out of the story. Have we seen the last of them? Well, in our next episode, we will see the end of an era. But as usual, that's not the end of the story. Until then, you've been listening to Insight with Gary Nation. Thanks for tuning in.